This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. So many of us think uh, that the next time management system will be the answer to being more productive, to getting us on top of our work, our chores, actually our entire life. Well, what if no time management system exists that can overcome the notion that we are finite humans in an infinite world? The award-winning journalist and author Oliver Berkman sets out to rearrange our brain and accept that it just won't get done. Rather, his new book, 4,000 Hours, Time Management for Mortals, gives us a strategy for answering Mary Oliver's question, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And then he helps us figure out how to make that happen. So we have plenty to figure out here. And Oliver, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So one of your previous books was titled Help, How to Become Slightly Happier and Get a Bit More Done. And um, in your new book, you caution that we won't be getting it all done. Isn't that contrary to your previous book, or did that book lead to this book? I don't think it's contrary. That that book, um, my sort of, that was my first book, and it was really a collection of my columns for the Guardian, um, and then I did a book in between. But the, <clears throat> I guess the idea in that subtitle, "How to Become Slightly Happier and Get a Bit More Done," was to sort of draw attention to the modesty of the, <laughs> the goal. And I think that it, I think it's in keeping with this book in the following sense. I think getting a little bit more done maybe no good at all compared to uh getting an infinite amount done mm-hmm. but it's a lot better than not getting anything done and i think that kind of idea of going to find ways to become infinitely productive and infinitely efficient is the one that sort of resurfaces in a in a hopefully more fully worked out way mm-hmm. in in this book i think in both cases and i think this probably does run through pretty much everything i write there's a kind of a there's a kind of pessimism that involves facing up to the way reality really is, no matter how much we might wish it to be otherwise. Mm-hmm. But it's a pessimism, I really hope, that is a prelude to um, something very, very optimistic and positive and proactive and empowering, which is like once you see how things actually are, that's when you can sort of give up certain futile attempts to do the impossible and sort of pour your attention and your focus and your energy into what is possible without tormenting yourself about the fact that you're not superhuman. So I feel like it's all in keeping. It's all about sort of embracing the non-negotiable truth of our finite nature. Not, you know, just to be despairing and resigned and nihilistic, but, but precisely because it's denying that truth that keeps us sort of from from, you know, making progress on the things we care about the most. Well, so, Oliver, I I actually, my takeaway 
um, and we, you know, we'll get to a lot of the details, was not that it was pessimistic, uh, but that it was realistic and that we, uh, you know, what I think you helped me understand as I was reading through this is by avoiding being realist, uh, being unrealistic, that you really set yourself up to either be, you know, the the little rat running around in the um, whatever that thing is called. Um, or what's it called? Uh, is it a tra- hamster wheel? I a know. hamster wheel. Not, yeah. I guess maybe it's a hamster in a hamster right. wheel, not a rat. Right. Um, yeah. I, He's in the wrong cage. If it, yeah, yeah, I, exactly. I found, you know, I use that word rearranging uh, the brain in the introduction for a reason, because I do think some of what you're guiding us to think about is about rearranging our brain, where it's telling us one thing and maybe we need to think about it differently. So here's, here's you know, this is a lot of stuff I'm going to say, and I'm taking it uh, from the book, but I think it helps lay the groundwork. So you remind us the day will never arrive when you have everything under control that you've got the flood of emails that you think you're going to contain. You've got a to-do list that seems to just get longer. Uh, You're trying to meet all your obligations at work and at home. You're trying to make sure nobody's angry with you for missing a deadline or dropping the ball. And that when the fully optimized person you've become can turn at long last to the things in their life that its life is really supposed to be about. So you're telling us we're never going to get it done. I want to talk about practically what that looks like. And let's let's start with the thing that I think we all deal with all the time. These goddamn emails that just, you know, just keep pouring, pouring, pouring in. So one-time management theory is, what's it, zero inbox? Inbox zero usually, but yeah, whatever. Yeah, inbox yeah, exactly. zero. So tell me how what you call um, the theory of cleaning the deck actually is not the right thing for us to do. I think the really important thing here is is to get a sense, for me anyway, one of the big discoveries as I sort of was researching this whole area is it's like how much effort we put into a certain kind of avoidance, into a certain kind of not consciously feeling what it's like to be um, finite creatures with limited time, limited attention, limited all sorts of other things. And and how much it's possible to see um, modern productivity culture, modern approaches to time management as uh, ways of sort of furthering that avoidance, making mm-hmm. you feel that someday soon tomorrow next month next year because it's never it's never now but it's always sometime in the future you might finally achieve that kind of godlike position over your time uh that would enable you not to have to feel as one of the psychotherapists i quote in the book puts it you know imprisoned claustrophobic and constrained by by reality which is where we all are but we have differing degrees of ability to sort of face it and feel it. And I think a lot of, just to make this very practical then, a lot of what I'm calling in the book clearing the decks, you know, that idea that you're going to get into your office in the morning, say, or to your desk, and 
spend a few hours or an hour, you know, tying up all the loose ends, getting all the emails out of the way, and then you're going to find this wonderful expanse of time uh, to focus on what matters the most. Or maybe it's not on the level of a day. Maybe it's like, okay, for the next few months, I've just got to attend to all this nonsense because I know that later on I'm going to really get to the meat of, of what things are about. Um, and this occurs in a million other ways as well. That, I think people do that, and I think I spent years doing it, for that feeling of um, uh, not being constrained by reality, for that feeling of getting on top of everything, having your life sorted out with a capital S and a capital O, you know. Um, and it doesn't work, firstly because the decks keep on filling up and, you know, there's no real reason to believe that, that there's no... There's effectively infinite inputs, right? You, you can get as many, an infinite number of emails effectively. You can feel an infinite number of obligations being placed on you by your boss or your family or your society. You can have an infinite number of um, ambitions for your life or at least effectively infinite. The fact that we're finite and the inputs coming into us are effectively infinite means that you're never going to get to the top of them. In fact, if you get more efficient at dealing with them, what happens is you just get more of them because we can talk about the various different reasons why but but you know one obvious reason with email is if you get really good at replying to email you get more you get more replies to your emails <laughs> and you get involved in more email conversations and uh you know you get a reputation as being responsive to email so more people email you and it all sort of it, it, you know this is parkinson's law by another name this famous observation from the 50s that work expands to fill the time available mm. for its completion um and so clearing the decks I think I understand the emotional motive for wanting to clear the decks. And I think it does ultimately, you know, connect distantly to our mortality and not wanting to face that. But it's just a bad way to actually make time for the things that you care about the most. I'm talking in shorthand here. Obviously, mm -hmm. some, people's most, some people's most important work will be conducted through email. And so yeah. these kind of these descriptions won't exactly apply. And so above all, I think this is a matter of sort of learning to kind of um, hang out with or, or get friendly towards or, or maybe uh, lean into, if I'm allowed to say that, a certain kind of discomfort, a certain kind of slightly unpleasant feeling that comes from, for example, knowing that while you spend the first three hours of the day focusing on the piece of writing you really care about, to use an example from my life, um, that things will be piling up in the inbox, that you will in some sense be, you know, losing control mm -hmm. of, your, of your time. Um, and that the goal with that kind of the discomfort of finitude has to be to sort of see why you're feeling it and not focus on trying to eradicate it in favor of this position of power and control but um but instead uh just sort of accept that it sort of comes along for the ride if you're going to be spending your limited time on things you really care about so oliver when i thought about this it it led me to these series of things that i uh, that occurred to me so i am a to-do list maniac now i did start my life 20 years as an accountant, keeping track of my time in increments of six minutes. So you can see how inbred the idea of exactly the antithesis of what you talk about, that time only has value um, if it 
if its outcome could be measured. But so I'm a to, I'm a to-do list maniac. So now and again, I plow through my to-do list, which might even include quiet time or a walk or very quick exercise, and all goes according to a plan, and I am one happy camper. I mean, I'm a really happy camper when one of those days happens. But more often, my plan gets derailed by life from a call from a friend in need or some unexpected urgency at work or one email leads to another, and then I'm reading the newspaper, and then I read the newspaper, which makes me curious about geographically where that place is or who that person is. And, you know, it, 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 and I'm going down a rabbit hole, and it could be four hours goes by, maybe a day goes by, and I've done none of the things I intended to. But in there was a decision, mm-hmm. right? So, I got back to a needy friend that maybe I always find annoying and maybe is one of my dearest friends, that <laughs> we're we're making decisions in there. And this was this was a critical thing that that I think you talk about is that there is an element of a fear of missing out on something. There is an element of you're if you're not getting to the emails, you're also deciding who you're going to get back to or not and what's important to you or not. And there are going to be ramifications for that, right? Either you'll develop a reputation for not getting back to people or um, you have a friend that's going to be offended because mm-hmm. you're not getting back to their email. I don't know whether your idea is that we have an auto reply, say, I'd love to get back to you, but I can't, or we're deleting it, or we're... But how does that practically look when you say, you know what, I'm going to spend an hour a day, two hours a day, getting back to my email, and I'm not going to do it first thing in the morning. What does that really look like when you're doing it? I think there are two interesting topics here to untangle, and one is about um, planning and the degree of control that we can sort of expect to exert over how time unfolds. <laughs> um, and then the other is about trade-offs and the fact that time being finite means we're always making choices. So on that first one, I mean, I think, yeah, another way in which this desire to feel a kind of mastery over time tends to manifest especially for people who come from families of sort of compulsive planners like I do um, is definitely to want to to sort of try to reach out from the present to control the future by mapping out exactly how it's going to go and then firstly being constantly slightly anxious because you know deep down that you're not really controlling the future so you're always waiting to see if it's going to turn out the way you want and then secondly being sort of irritated or considering your things to have failed when reality sort of collides with with that plan um and i think you know a very practical thing there again it's it is a mindset shift and i think all of this is a mindset shift rather than a very specific technique but a big moment for me was when i realized that i could sort of I could honor the part of myself that wants at the beginning of the day to draw up a little schedule about how things are going to unfold without it being a manifestation of this very sort of unhealthy desire to um, force reality to mm-hmm. to go my way. Because um, you can just hold plans very loosely. You can remember what the American meditation teacher Joseph Goldstein says, you know, when he says that what we forget is that a plan is just a thought mm. or, a, or a statement of intent that you write down on a piece of paper. It's fine. 
have a plan for the day and also be completely um, accepting of the fact that it's going to change 20 times when, when events change underneath you, right? You can do both those things. Um, I, I sometimes think it's like, I mean, the problem is I know nothing about maritime navigation, but I sort of imagine that it must be like uh, um, uh, maritime navigation, right? Where you're constantly sort of setting a course, you're accepting that you're going to veer off the course, then you set it again and you use mm. it to, to get broadly to the, the end of the, the journey through the day. But that's not because you managed to kind of dictate how things would, would go. It's that you had one sort of game plan and you were sort of brutally realistic about the fact that this is that your thoughts at eight o'clock in the morning about where you'd like the day to go are kind of, you know, they're, an, they're an opening bid in a, in, a, in, a, in a process, right? I mean, that's, that's, all, it, that's all it can I like can really that, be. an opening bid. <laughs> and then the other point, they're talking about missing out. And, and I mean, I think there's something really central here, again, which I talk about in the book, which is just like, OK, it, it follows from having finite time that any decision to do anything with an hour is a decision not to do all something the other else with that hour. Right. So, again, I think this is this kind of realism that ultimately I think is really a relief and a liberation, because once you see that you are going to be neglecting some stuff today, in fact, most stuff, no matter what you do, that that just comes with being human. Well, then you can stop beating yourself up about neglecting most things right and you can turn instead to the question of what am I going to choose to neglect like what shall I focus on and what will I neglect instead of this notion that you might somehow manage to um, not neglect anything important um, I think this is really central for those of us this might not apply to everyone but for me certainly I had like for many years and I'm sure still to a large extent today a lot of kind of self-worth or self-esteem wrapped up in the question of how productive I was being and that might not be the worst thing in the world but if you if you're if you're telling yourself in the back of your mind that you haven't really justified your existence on the planet today unless you've managed to like do all the things that seem like they matter today then that's just a recipe for um, uh, self-reproach because you definitely aren't going to have time to do all the things that, that seem like they matter. That's kind of built in to the, to the situation. So, you know, I think that's a huge burden lifted myself to see that um, not, you know, that missing out on certain experiences, neglecting certain duties, disappointing certain people, failing to realize certain ambitions like that's going to happen mm -hmm. because you because your reach exceeds your grasp just as a conscious human being and then it's just a question of how to how to do that most artfully and the most wisely instead of trying to avoid it avoid it happening at all well and that was a that was a wonderful summary of the piece of the book that I found the most impactful is um, that all of us for different reasons, or many of us, not all of us for sure, but many of us for different reasons have a sense that productivity is tied to self-worth, mm -hmm. right? I'm, I'm the daughter of Holocaust survivors. Like, they got picked to live, so I damn well better get something right. done, right? Um, 
But one of the big takeaways, I think, um, from the book, and we'll get to it later in the conversation, is the sort of core of life, which is determining how your self-worth is measured by something that is unique to who you are, not necessarily to a productivity standard. And I think we, you know, we live in a capitalist society, um, which I I don't have a problem with that, but it, by definition, evaluates your self-worth by your productivity or your net worth or your something else. So a big piece that I thought of as I was reading the book and you go through some of this is to detach those things Mm -hmm. and that that's the critical um, step of it. And you talk about this idea of um, planning for the future while trying to live in the present in a baby training, which I thought was an interesting (laughs) example. So share that because I think that that epitomizes it in, in a way that many of us can understand very quickly. Sure. I mean, I think um, if you uh, are the kind of person who buys books of advice and then you become a parent, you probably buy a bunch of books of advice on parenting. And I certainly did that um, and wrote a big piece for The Guardian about it eventually. Um, and what I'm sort of saying, in the noting in the book is how the 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 focus of all these books, even though they are sort of at each other's throats and there are these very uh, big ideological differences in how you should be um, uh, parenting a newborn baby, they all have this fundamental focus on the job being future-oriented, on a sort of instrumentalist approach to time that says you need to do the right things now for your child's later childhood and adulthood and they implicitly measure the success of whether you're a good parent by this moment in the future when you'll be able to say that you sort of produced a good adult successful adult uh, or not and I think this is yeah I think it's a specific example a microcosm of something that we all do with time whether we're parents or not or have recently been parents of newborns or not which is to put all the focus on the future goal and and to judge the value of a moment by whether we're using it well for the future for this future purpose and if you to some extent you should do that and you have to do it and we probably can't avoid doing it as you know evolved creatures but if you do it exclusively and it as you say it's a mindset that the economic system we're in definitely sort of reinforces the result is that you drain the present moment of your life of all its value and you put it all into the future so you ask you know it's really odd when you stop and think about it as i eventually did to make all your decisions or lots of your decisions about how to sort of uh relate to your zero year old child on the basis of the future so for example one very obvious example in the all the sleep training stuff is that like um it's a really bad habit to let your baby get into the habit of falling asleep on your chest because then eventually what's going to happen is your baby's going to really need to be falling asleep on on its mother or father and then uh you know won't be able to put themselves to sleep and 
it'll be chaos in the household and people won't be able to get back to their jobs, which implicitly is often the, the real agenda mm-hmm. <laughs> between lawyers, as it needs to be, of course, and for most people in, in our present economic situation. Um, and just no consideration on this one example of whether it might just be a really nice thing for the baby and the parent in that, that day, in that present moment, to, um, to fall asleep together in that way, right? So you can disagree on the specific example, but the idea that the only question you're asking about that relationship there in the present moment is whether you're creating a bad habit for the future is just really an odd one. And I also quote Adam Gopnik, the New Yorker journalist, making a similar point about sort of um, like gory, very specific, very violent and gory video games um, that, you know, you might or might not want your, your sort of 12-year-old to be playing all day long. And there's sort of two questions there. One is, is it going to turn them into a... Like, psychopath. Psychopath as an adult. And the evidence on that is extremely, like, not persuasive, as I understand it, that video games have this kind of long-term deleterious effect. And that's the only question that gets asked when people have this debate about whether these things are good or, or bad. But also just like, it might not be an optimal way of spending your childhood to be spending lots of time uh, yeah. sort of immersed in that sort of digital blood and gore. Or it might, you know, I do realise that the video games especially is a topic that people tend to get incredibly exercised about and then they send you 8,000 emails. Um, but, um, and I've got enough emails. But, but, um, <laughs> but that's just another example of like, why make, the, the, the question cannot only relate should not only relate to whether time is being used well for the future, but to what time is whether it's being used well right now, because childhood is its own thing and isn't only a rehearsal or a preparation or a training for adulthood. And in the same way, you know, every day of your life is its own thing and isn't only a preparation or a training for somewhere that you're, that you're headed. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. So, Oliver, let's, because that <clears throat> balancing the present with the future, right? You know, I was a teenager in the 60s, so we were the hippy-dippy. I wasn't a hippy-dippy, but there were hippy-dippies <laughs> of my age that were, you know, you got to live in the moment. You can't be spending your life trying to plan for the future. So on the one hand, we have people very living in the moment, and you talk about what that means in your in your book. And then we have the diligent uh, couple or person that, you know, put one foot in front of the other. They did their job. They never lived, loved their job. They maybe lived for the weekend, but really they were plotting towards retirement. Mm-hmm. And then they get to the retirement age, and you do have the awful stories where somebody didn't make it to it, but you have plenty of stories of that 40 years of working paid off, and they are happily retired with their savings in the bank, um, and that worked. How do, you, how do you advise we think about balancing those two things of living in the moment and planning for the future? Well, I definitely sort of 
have a little bit of a rant in the book about the idea, the sort of advice to be here now, even though it seems like that might be what I'm pointing towards as its own kind of really weird and difficult challenge. And that if you really do sort of spend your days really trying to be in the moment, then you tend to just end up very self-consciously asking yourself whether you're sufficiently present in the moment and it's sort of it's sort of self-undermining um I, I you know i i think there is not a nice crisp answer here it, it is just a question of balance <laughs> it is this question of tacking between the two emphases making sure you're focusing on one some of the time but not to the expense of the other i think obviously meaningful work which we're not all lucky enough to have of course um and and it's not good that we live in a society that denies it to so many people but but meaningful work ideally fuses both in the same act mm -hmm. right so 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 the ideal is that is that there is um a present moment sense of meaning in the thing that is also helping you save for a time and, mm -hmm. um, or build your reputation and think about what that is yeah and i think it's i mean i think that's what that's what makes work in some any work in some sense creative or or a site of growth um i love that the Jungian therapists all like let like use the word generative a lot i think that's good um there's some there's something about your work in this ideal case that is sort of making you more fully a little bit more fully who you are or who you were meant to be um and then i do think it's worth having in a life and i try you know it's something i definitely have struggled with but like to have a handful of things in your life that you really do do only for the, the experience of the those mm -hmm. things themselves and I, I write in the book about the philosopher kieran setia who's who's coined this term uh atelic activities to refer to things that just where it's very obvious that the value is for themselves and not for something else or not for some place they're leading up to. Um, and hiking is, is an example that I go into in, in a little bit more depth. I loved um, that distinction of those two, the atelic and telic, I think was the other word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, all just from telos, right? From the idea that like th certain, certain things are defined by the, 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 the culmination that they are leading towards. It doesn't make sense to think of hiking in this way, and it, and it doesn't make sense to think of hiking as something to subject to sort of the ethos of productivity or anything else, because um, you're not going to get, if you're someone who loves hiking, um, which I am in a sort of amateurish way, um, you don't, you're, not, you're not waiting to get to a point in life where you say, okay, I've done the hiking I was intending to do. Um, you will stop, but you won't finish i think that's the distinction that satia um, mm -hmm. uh, so oliver the other if, sorry yeah the, the other piece that um I, I thought informed how you think about this is how you talk about impatience as a kind of addiction and that how the development of patience is creating freedom Talk a little bit about that, because I think that's not a concept that we often think about. Yeah, I mean, I I really loved exploring this part of the, the topic because there's some really interesting work being done and a few interesting people sort of 
uh, living as examples of of this kind of patience. I think again, just to slot this into the overarching theme here, um, impatience is basically a, an emotional reaction to not being able to make the world go at the speed you want it to go at. Um, I think that's a fairly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a fairly sort of uh, watertight definition, which again comes from this this quest to feel this kind of unrealistic kind of control over time, right? To 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 feel that um, things can go along with your plans, that you can get things done at the speed they need to they need to be completed, and then reality sort of stubbornly resists and says, in all sorts of cases, like no, there's a traffic jam right now, and so you're going to have to wait for it, um, or a little bit more subtly, you know, if you want the benefits of reading this novel, you're sort of just going to have to slow down to the speed that the novel demands. Maybe in certain reading contexts, you can benefit from like speed reading or something, but not for, you know, a kind of fiction experience. That's another example of something that just takes the time it takes. And so patience in this context is the ability to let something take the time that it takes, even though you've got this kind of inner urge to kind of make it run to to your schedule and not have to wait around to let things work themselves out and work their effects on you. Um, and I, in the book, I, I do this thing. I, I, go, I went to meet this um, art historian at Harvard called... I uh, love that Jennifer, story. Jennifer Roberts, who she has all her students um, choose a painting or sculpture in the Boston, Cambridge area and then go and look at it for three hours straight um and And three hours is Um, a long long time to do that yeah and she knows that and it's really unpleasant at first i can testify um even when they give you a nice little folding seat in the harvard art museum which they did it's not it's still um it's uh it's still pretty agonizing and she knows that it's agonizing and her argument is that you know it takes a lot longer to see visual arts than it does to look at them. You can look in a minute and convince yourself that you've seen all there is to see, or you can, if you're, if you're sort of forced by your uh, teacher or whatever to, to, to spend this time, you sort of run up against the impatience and you run up against the emotional sort of distress of not being able to get up and go and do something else and you know get life moving again at, at the speed you want. And then on the other side of that, you do literally, in my experience and in hers, and I think her students as well, you know, you start to see things in the painting that you didn't see. I'm not even speaking metaphorically. I mean, just mm-hmm. literally. Literally. Um, right. Like, like shapes and shadows implying things and sort of changes of the gradations of color that you hadn't noticed. And like, it's real. It's, and, it, and I only get there by sort of being willing to um, push through this... Um, agony and she makes the really interesting case that like patients didn't always used to be this kind of um like i think if you go back decades and centuries it's a very sort of passive virtue it's the kind of thing you tell people who um to to sort of who don't have power in that social structure uh to sort of make them reconcile themselves to their position so you can imagine sort of the ethos of patience being taught as it was i think right to to, um 
sort of housewives in in eras gone by while men uh occupied the public sphere and did exciting things their job was to wait patiently at home but as and that's like you know that's a sort of um uh so it's something that can sort of reinforce existing power relations but but jennifer roberts makes this point that as society hugely accelerates the ability to resist that acceleration and to not go at the speed that every, everybody wants you to go at and that life seems to move at, that becomes a, not a way of accommodating yourself to your lack of power, but actually a form of power. It's a way of um, resisting and a sort of subversive way of, of you know, gaining an edge, really, because, because the environment has changed around you so much that now, like, the ability to... It's gone from like, oh, well, you should, you should not expect excitement in your life because we live in a sexist or various other kinds of society where, where you know, you're, you have to sort of reconcile yourself to that. And it's gone to like, well, no, excitement so completely saturates every moment of our days that the ability to not need that for a while while you're waiting for something to unfold is actually really, um, you know, that's a professional advantage and kind of a superpower. And, and you know, uh, um, Oliver, you talk in the book about um, the Sabbath or and and not in a religious sense. I grew up Orthodox Jewish. We observed oh, Shabbos, uh, meaning Saturday, at least for the years we lived in New York where you, you know, you couldn't work, you couldn't touch electrical things, you couldn't turn on lights, you, you know, that you actually were removed. Now, in those mm -hmm. days, we didn't have all the onslaught of distractions uh, that we've got now. But, I, you know, you bring up the idea of creating a day that doesn't need to be religiously attached, um, but is a day where you impose a restriction on yourself. Do, do you find yourself doing that? Do you see more people trying to take a day or a half a day and just absolutely isolating themselves from distractions? I mean, I think it is on the rise. I think the thing that I sort of try to be very realistic about in the book is, you know, that, that you see this thing happening. People talk about taking digital Sabbaths, um, I have tried a little bit as an individual and we have tried a very little bit as a as a family. Um, though it begins to get, again, I think it, you need to sort of think about it carefully because it begins to get a little bit sort of bloody-minded in mm -hmm. a way if you're going to sort of, you know, we often have a very lovely Sunday in this house that involves uh, our son spending... Uh, a good hour watching TV at some point, and you sort of like to. to and it's still a good day. That just makes like uh, makes that uh, makes life less restful, not more restful. Um, but also, what's so important, and what what has been in tr religious tradition so important about Sabbaths is not that you are taking a day off things, but that everyone's taking the same day off mm. things. And so, certain environmental pressures switch, right? And if you're if nobody, if the sh I mean, you know, for, to take an obvious example, if the shops are closed then it's very easy to not spend your whole day engaging in consumerism because the shops are closed. Uh, if, um, if everybody is stopping work for that Saturday or that Sunday uh, and is sort of in a, in a mode where they're expecting you to sort of 
to people to call on their neighbours or something, which you know people don't really do spontaneously anymore. Then it's much easier because if you go, if you knock on your neighbour's door, the chances are they're waiting for visitors like you. So there's a really important point here about synchronising time off and the degree to which we've sort of created this massively desynchronised um, society uh, at all levels of economic privilege, right? Because if you're if you're sort of working at a fulfillment center for a big box retailer, you're going to get called into work on these totally unpredictable, awful schedules. You can't organize a life around them. But also if you're a sort of freelance laptop person like me, and you have a lot of autonomy over your schedule, you still find that you're not synchronized with anybody else's in your sort of social circle because they're all doing the same. So there's this big problem of sort of being out of sync with each other. And it's difficult to see what you do about that on a macro scale that doesn't involve some kind of pretty politically, some fairly big government things in terms of sort of telling people when they can work and things like that, which I'm not sure I am a supporter of. So uh, well, so the way. question that it, it brought to my mind, you talk about uh, digital nomads, and certainly with the pandemic, we've seen people take on remote work um, at a level that we never would have imagined. And there will probably be a certain amount of stickiness uh, to what that looks like. Um, and and I'd be curious to as to what you think is sticky or not. But you talk about the digital nomads, this idea of working whenever you want. That all sounds great. But at the end of the day, the loss of communal time, and you talk about um, some experiments have been done so that and it connects to your idea, too, of the Sabbath, that all of, all of what you're talking about reminded me that the need for us to be with others with a sense of community and how you do that and, and how you create that without creating too much structure right. or obliging people to get involved in religious activities is a puzzle that we haven't quite figured out. Right, absolutely. Um, I think it's, yeah, I think the thing about digital nomadism, I sort of bring it into the book. Not many people are actually digital nomads, I get that, but I think it's a sort of, it, it, it's the most distilled version of this kind of ideology of time that a lot of us do share, which is that the we all think that the ultimate, or we often think that the ultimate um, ideal world would be to have total freedom over when we did what. And we may not all do it by sort of taking our laptops to uh, tropical beaches or whatever, but, but we sort of do think that, you know, autonomy over our schedules is the, is the ultimate thing. And then what you find if you do that to take it to an extreme is that, yeah, it is kind of lonely because, um, yeah, in the case of the digital nomad, you're sort of cropping up in new places with no roots and nobody you know, and you can't do the sort of ordinary things that uh, with other people because you're just not in their patterns. Um, it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting challenge right now. We just moved from Brooklyn to North Yorkshire, only sort of for a year, uh, as far as we know. And um, I do have family and friends fairly nearby. But you come to a new place and you're like, wow, I've really got to like put some effort into embedding myself into other people's rhythms. And the you know obvious ways that you can do that are to join 
organizations and clubs and societies, right? I mean, they, they count for something and they, they reduce your temporal sovereignty in a small way because you, if they meet at 6.30 p.m. on a Wednesday, you have to go then if you want to go to the meeting. You can't choose when, when it's going to happen. Um, and in return, you get community. But yeah, that, that then makes it obvious to see as well why so much more home-based working and so much less in real life, socialising is going to uh, be detrimental to, to all. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. I want a vacation that can make the fun happen. For me, the best parts of a vacation are the ones that surprise you. I call those fun expected moments and I get those from FunJet Vacations. FunJet Vacations is a one-stop shop for all of your vacation needs, including flights, hotels, transfers, and excursions. FunJet Vacations offer vacation packages to your favorite destinations, such as Mexico, the Caribbean, Florida, Hawaii, and more. For over 45 years, they've delivered friendly, reliable service so you can focus on the fun. A FunJet vacation creates lasting memories of non-stop excitement. Right now, for a limited time, our listeners can use promo code FJ50 to save $50 off on your next FunJet vacation. Get more moments that are fun expected. Surprise yourself with where you can go at FunJet.com or call your local travel advisor. Restrictions apply. So, Oliver, before we we get to uh, the close of this conversation and a couple of very helpful things that I think you bring up in the book. So you wrote a column for a long time uh, for The Guardian called This Column Will Change Your Life. You've written two books uh, that are uh, focused on happiness and being happy. You have you have an email newsletter, which I've subscribed to, called The Imperfectionist. Thank you. So I'm curious, Oliver, if you have found that you have moved along a continuum that has improved the quality of your life. And where where do you find the frustrations? Because I don't have to tell you that, you know, we might think knowing what the answer is is the way to having the answer. But in fact, knowing the answer is a hell of a lot easier than doing it. So what's that been like for you? Because you're more knowledgeable about this than most of us are. Yeah, I mean, I think that sort of... uh, uh, That question of um, living the things that you grasp intellectually... uh, I'm, there may be personality differences here, but for me, it's always that order. It's very straightforward, right? I can I can get a handle on certain concepts and figure them out really super easily. And then it takes months and years to try to um, bodily sort of live, live into them. And actually writing the book was an example of that because I sort of got some useful clarificatory conceptual insights quite early on. But then in order to actually write it and finish it, I found I did have to sort of at least somewhat change in ways that are expressed in the book um, to become 
more okay with neglecting certain other things in order to focus on it to uh to sort of um move past a certain kind of perfectionism with how i was going to end up expressing it so actually the act of writing the book was was an example of that um and i think you know the big thing for me was to was when i sort of realized that this was never going to that it that it never ends right mm -hmm. i mean you never find the perfect and final way of organizing your day you never consider that you've fully integrated all the uh insights that you've had into the into the way that you live your life and then there's this other complicated effect that happens i think for a lot of people certainly for me which is you sort of you reach further as you as you do grow and you and you learn to face reality in a little bit of a a little bit more i'm certainly not claiming anything like um you know having done all there is to do in this regard you sort of then bite off bigger challenges and then so they sort of so then it often feels like you're not making progress because mm -hmm. um you know just to focus on work for example i have you know as i have um become i think a little bit uh more comfortable with the kind of inherent risk of certain career directions and things I want to do, you then take a slightly bigger risk and then you're up against that. Um, you know, you experience uh, the challenges and difficulties of marriage, say, but if, you're, but if I had re remained in my early adulthood mode of total commitment phobia, I would have never got myself into that relationship to even experience mm -hmm. those difficulties. So, so there's this kind of really interesting dynamic where you, you, uh, the more you can take on of the world, the more you do take on, and then it feels like it's just as much of a challenge as it was uh, a couple of years ago. I don't know if that resonates with well, I think that Your makes experience. you human, Oliver, because I would be I'd be a little bit worried if you told me you read all your advice, you put it in place and you didn't have any because it does feel like uh, a process. But it, not but and at the you know, towards the end of the book, um, you talk about a book uh, with a funny title. Uh, the book is called The Universe Doesn't Give a Flying Fuck About You. <laughs> but it, it, I'm going to read this paragraph that you wrote because I, I think it adds another element that informs us how to, you know, this is a journey. This is a process, right? You're not going to wake up. You're not going to read your book and wake up tomorrow and it's all going to be right. You, you know, I... I, I read this book carefully. I want to go back and read it because I think there's so much for us to think about. But this paragraph I thought was so um, – uh, well, I thought it was cool. I'll, I'll use that word even though I hate that Great. word. Um, so the paragraph is, no wonder it comes as a relief to be reminded of your insignificance. It's the feeling of realizing that you'd been holding yourself all this time to standards you couldn't reasonably be expected to meet. And this realization isn't merely calming, but liberating, because once you're no longer burdened by such an unrealistic definition of a life well spent, you're free to consider the possibility that a far wider variety of things might qualify as meaningful ways to use your finite time. 
you're free, too, to consider the possibility that many of the things you're already doing with it are more meaningful than you'd supposed, and that until now, you've subconsciously been devaluing them on the grounds that they weren't significant enough. Comment on that paragraph, because I think that's so powerful. I guess part of what I want to do here is to translate this question of what it means to be finite creatures with infinite, with minds that can sort of picture, conceive of the infinite onto this grand stage of, you know, the meaning of life and how the pitfall that we run into here is is setting up all sorts of demands, especially in the sort of fame and celebrity fixated culture that we live in now, um, where a meaningful life means being incredibly extraordinary or means affecting millions of people or means being remembered thousands of years after you're gone or, you know, putting a dent in the universe, to quote uh, Steve Jobs. Um, And I think that sort of naturally where your mind is going to go if you have this notion that you know, it might be possible to become a kind of uh, cure cancer over your, over your time. But that's really odd when you stop to think about it, because do you really want to say, I mean, maybe the problem there is not that you haven't yet managed to sort of produce the work of art that's going to be remembered a thousand years from now, but that you're using a really odd definition of a meaningful life. Why? And here I'm sort of borrowing from the work of a philosopher called Ido Landau. Why? should that be the definition of a meaningful life? And do you really want to say that, you know, a life, several years spent focusing your time on caring for an elderly relative or several years spent providing, you know, nutritious meals and a loving uh, home environment for a kid, you know, do you really want to say those don't count? I think Mm -hmm. most of us intuitively feel that those are meaningful ways to spend uh, time, even though a thousand years from now, it's not going to mean anything. Right. And likewise, you know, just in the sort of creative sphere, I think it would be, you know, I have all sorts of ambitions for this book, of course. I would love, you know, tons and tons and tons of people to be affected by it. But I don't think it's a meaningless endeavor if, if you know, a few people uh, are reached and uh, by it and it resonates with them. And I don't think that, um, you know, you should not write a novel because you because it's probably not going to be remembered like the novels of Tolstoy. Um, And I don't think you should, if you can, you know, and it's very, it gets interesting in the context of sort of political activism and environmental activism and things like that, right? You know, is it meaningless to work on making your neighborhood a little bit more environmentally friendly, even though, you know, it's very hard to see that that's going to have some kind of decisive impact on the, on the, on the, fate of the global climate. I think there's important questions to be asked here about the the standards that we're bringing and whether we're sort of setting the bar at a place where it just rules out almost all of what humans are good at doing and find and find absorbing and and um, and meaningful. To do. And, and and Oliver, to that point, I mean, it would be easy to think one way as we're talking about this conversation to get sort of stuck in a nihilistic way of, you know, then nothing matters, you know, this whole, that that going down that train of thought. I actually felt like 
you brought me as a reader back to how much meaning there is, but the five questions that you come to at the end of the book, um, I think are really such brilliant questions, Oliver, to be, that I would encourage everybody to look at and then go back and read the book. So the questions are, where in your life or your work are you currently pursuing comfort when what's called for is little discomfort? Or are you holding yourself to and judging yourself by standards of productivity or performance that are impossible to meet? Or in what ways have you yet to accept the fact that you are who you are, not the person you think you ought to be? Um, how would you spend your days differently if you didn't care so much about seeing your actions reach fruition, like what you're talking about with climate change? And in what areas of your life are you still holding back until you feel like you know what you're doing? Because they get to... Um, they really get to the notion of meaning, the, the, the reverse of what we're talking about. But as you, as you say at the almost end of the book, um, that, that in terms of reading, reaching the greatest heights of productivity, accomplishment, service, and fulfillment are accomplished by understanding you're a limited human not how many people you helped or how much you got done, but that working within the limits of your moment in history and your finite time and talents, you actually got around to doing and made life more luminous for the rest of us by doing, and I love the sentence, I love the sentence, Oliver, whatever magnificent task or weird little thing it was that you came here for. And to me, uh, in reading this book, that's the, liber that's the liberating notion, right? I don't need to be Oliver Berkman. I don't need to have been an award-winning journalist. I can't write well anyway. Um, <laughs> don't use me as the example of, and anyway, carry on. Yeah, but, <laughs> or anybody else, you know, we all pick someone, right? We all yeah, pick sure. someone else that we think's got it all together. Um, my friend Miriam always says we're always going to fail by comparison because we compare our inside self to their outside self. Yeah. Right? Yeah, totally. You got to lose. They, you're going to lose in that comparison. And so I think this idea, the weird little thing it was that you came here for, is a big gift, Oliver, that you're giving uh, to your readers. I think that's a lovely, liberating um, notion that really will go. Let's go back to the title of your book. We've been talking with Oliver Berkman, the author of 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. I do think you help us think about just how we want to spend those 4,000 weeks that make up an 80-year-old person's life. So, um Thank you so much for writing it. Thank you for uh, spending an hour uh, in conversation. And I urge our listeners to pick up this time management book because it's not really a time management book. Um, 
at all because I do think it'll rearrange our brains a little bit. Oh, well, thank you very, very much for that. Uh, uh, and yeah, it's been, it's been a real pleasure to talk. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Oliver. Thank you. Be well. We've been talking with Oliver Berkman, the author of 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.